Can technology help us beat aging? Today we go beyond with Aubrey de Grey, a biomedical gerontologist, chief science officer of the Sense Research Foundation and VP of New Technology Discovery at HX Therapeutics. He is editor-in-chief of the academic journal Rejuvenation Research, author of the Mitochondrial Free Radical Theory of Aging and co-author of Ending Aging. He is known for his view that medical technology may enable human beings alive today not to die from age-related causes. Aubrey is also an international adjunct professor of the Moscow Institute of Physics and Technology, a fellow of the Gerontological Society of America, the American Aging Association, and the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies. Let's go beyond with Aubrey de Grey. So, Aubrey the Grey, thank you so much for connecting today with the spacecraft. <laughs> well, thank you for having me on the show. Very welcome. All right, so we're going to begin. What I have prepared today are nine or ten questions that are going to help our audience understand the generics and the context of what you do and of this field and also go in more depth, in detail, in some of the fascinating parts of it. Um, so we're going to speak today with Aubrey about uh, gerontology, uh, which is the study of the social, cultural, psychological, cognitive, and biological aspects of aging. And Aubrey, I would like to begin with, um, to put our audience in context um, with something that I read in your amazing book, Ending Aging, very recommended for everybody, Aubrey's book, Ending Aging. And I know you've spoken about this so many times, but to give an uh, intro to our audience, uh, in the book you say that there are seven mechanisms that gradually break down in our bodies over time. And also you say that over the last two decades, our understanding of these seven mechanisms has not fundamentally changed. Basically, we understand what's going on. And like in any other machine, if we manage to be able to repair these seven mechanisms, we could be able to defeat aging. So, Aubrey, for those in our audience that see aging as something abstract, uh, could you briefly describe, could you briefly put a face to those seven mechanisms so that uh, the audience can begin to understand why conquering aging is a real proposition? Sure. Um, <clears throat> and yes, it's, it, it's absolutely the right question to begin with. So thank you for asking it, because you're quite right that people do often have a very hazy, a very imprecise definition of aging in their minds. And that's a huge problem. It means that people don't really have a way to appreciate the possibility that we might bring aging under me medical control, let alone how close the possibility actually is. So, yes, there are these seven types of problem, as you say. Um, I don't like to call them mechanisms. I think it's actually better to say that these are seven types of damage that accumulate in the body. Perfect. Damage meaning changes to the actual structure and composition of the body, um, at the microscopic level, of course, the molecular and cellular level. These changes are caused as side effects of the way the body normally works, uh, normal, the body's normal operation. 
So they are absolutely inevitable that they will be created. Mm -hmm. Furthermore, the body is set up to tolerate only a certain amount of those various types of damage. And after, there's more, after there becomes more damage than that, the body doesn't work so well. So uh, we decline both physically and mentally. And that's why we get sick when we get old. But, of course, the way out of all of this is to repair the damage, to do exactly what we do with simple man-made machines like cars or airplanes or whatever, and eliminate those various types of damage, essentially restore the molecular and cellular structure and composition of the body to something like how it was at an earlier age, thereby preventing the body from going downhill because the body is still at the point where the amount of damage that it contains is within the tolerable um, threshold. Mm -hmm. What are these seven types of damage? Well, I could go through them in detail, but of course I've done that many times before, as you say, and it's really best to read about it. Yeah, let's just give Uh, like an overview. Yeah, sure. Um, But there are things like loss of cells. So if a cell dies anywhere in the body, then the number of cells of that type of um, of cell obviously goes down by one. And Mm -hmm. that can be reversed by the division of another cell to create an additional cell. And very often, that's exactly what happens automatically. And so we don't have to do anything. But sometimes cells die and they are not replaced by cell division. And so then, the, of course, the number of cells of that type continues to decline. One and then another and then another. And eventually, there are not enough of those cells to do their job, whatever their job may be. So then we've got a problem. And that causes aspects of aging like Parkinson's disease. It's mm-hmm. con- it contributes heavily to the decline in the immune system in the elderly, which, of course, is a big, big topic right now during the pandemic. And the way to fix it is very straightforward. We simply put the cells back with medicine when they're not being put back automatically by cell division. And the type of medicine in question is, of course, stem cell therapy. Mm-hmm. We generate cells in the laboratory that are the right kind of cell so that we can put them into the body and they will divide and become the cells that we need, the replacements for the cells that are dying. And this is being done. There are clinical trials going on right now for Parkinson's disease um, doing exactly this, trying to reverse Parkinson's disease uh, by restoring the number of a particular type of cell called dopaminergic neurons whose loss is the main driver of Parkinson's disease. So that's one type. Other types are things like waste products. Waste products accumulate inside cells just because they are generated as byproducts of normal metabolic processes. And most of these byproducts are not, do not accumulate because they are automatically destroyed by enzymes that we have evolved. But there are a small number of waste products which accumulate really, really slowly so that evolution has not experienced enough selective pressure to develop systems to break them down. And those things continue to accumulate and eventually late in life we get sick from those from that waste. So atherosclerosis is caused by the accumulation of oxidized cholesterol and macular degeneration, the number one cause of blindness in the elderly is caused by the accumulation of a byproduct of vitamin A. Um, Again, we just need to get rid of this stuff. 
Um, and the way we do it is by identifying other species, typically bacteria, that already have the enzymes that can break down these various types of waste. Then we introduce those enzymes one way or another. It depends, exactly how we introduce them depends on the tissue. Um, so that the waste product is eliminated as fast as it's generated. And so again, we do not have the problem of accumulation of the garbage and therefore the pathologies in late life that result from it. You get the idea? Yes. So the one I just gave you, the waste products, um, actually that accounts for two of the seven because mm -hmm. I like to distinguish waste products that accumulate inside cells from waste products that accumulate outside cells. Okay, that's, because, that's because outside, all we really need to do is vaccinate against them, essentially to get the immune system to engulf the waste, the waste material. Once it's inside the cell, because it is inherently easier to break down, it gets destroyed automatically. So okay, these so ones, uh, sorry to interrupt, because there was a little cut in the connection. Uh, these ones where you apply the immune system, is it the, the outside ones or the inside ones? the outside ones. Okay. So then, so we've done three so far. Well, there's loss of cells and there's garbage of two types. Mm -hmm. Then um, there's also cell number. So sometimes we have too many cells, cells dividing when they're not supposed to, which of course mm -hmm. is basically cancer. And we have various approaches to addressing cancer. We're very interested in cancer immunotherapy. We're also interested in controlling cell division by stopping cells from extending the ends of their chromosomes. Mm -hmm. And we've got uh, great progress in that area. Uh, then there's also a way of having too many cells that does not involve excessive cell division. This involves cells not dying when they're supposed to. So most mm. people think, well, hang on, cells are not supposed to die, so how could that be a thing? But actually it is, because in some cases, yes, cells are supposed to die, and sometimes they don't. And this, again, is um, a big deal in the immune system. Yeah. The immune system goes downhill partly because certain types of cell divide a lot in order to get rid of an infection, and then they don't die in order to make space for the new cells to divide a lot in response to the next infection. Yeah. So we had a problem from that. And um, we're also, there's also a very well-known type of um, example of this kind of problem called senescent cells. Yes. which accumulate um, typically after wounds or whatever, and they don't go away, and they, um, they do more harm than good. Mm -hmm. So these cells can be eliminated using drugs, as some people are doing already, or using gene therapy. Some other people are exploring that. So, yeah, there's lots of options there. Um, then um, there's also, so I've done five now. Um, okay. Then there is the accumulation of mutations in the mitochondria. Uh -huh. So the mitochondrion is a very important machine within cells that does the chemistry of breathing, and it has its own DNA. And it turns out that that DNA, that, that's a really bad place for DNA to be. So that DNA accumulates mutations much, much, much faster than the um, DNA in our normal chromosomes in the nucleus mm -hmm. of cells. And so we want to fix that. It turns out to be really hard to fix the DNA itself, but we can kind of make backup copies. We can essentially put copies of that DNA into mm -hmm. the nucleus, where, as I say, the mutation rate is far, far lower. Um, and we have to modify the genes in order that they will still work, even though the DNA is in the wrong place. But we have come a great, a long way to figuring out how to do that. Mm -hmm. And then finally, there's elasticity. So 
Some of our tissues need to be elastic in order to do their job. The most important one in terms of yes. health is the major arteries, which have to flex in order to buffer the heartbeat. And they get less mm -hmm. elastic with age, more stiff. And that means that the heart has to beat harder, so we get higher blood pressure. And uh, that, of course, has many different consequences. So we want to restore the elasticity. And that involves essentially drugs or enzymes that will eliminate certain um, cross-links, certain chemical bonds that accumulate spontaneously between proteins outside cells that confer this elasticity in the first place. And again, those drugs, we have um, already developed some enzymes that do this. Um, mm -hmm. Many of the projects I've been telling you about have been spun out as startup companies now, so they're being pursued in the private sector. And that's really good news because yeah. it means that they have a lot more money than what we were able to provide. Fantastic. I mean, this is a fantastic introduction for the audience. These seven different types, as you say, of damage, of damage that can happen. And this connects me with uh, the next part. You already described a little bit the solutions for these seven types of damage. One thing that really fascinated me in your book, Ending Aging, is your engineering approach. Your approach to uh, fixing these uh, different kinds of damage is uh, something intermediate between gerontology, as you say, and geriatrics. It's an engineering approach that you call uh, engineered negligible senescence. Right, and, and what you say in the book is that it's a fact of physics that any machine with moving parts, like our body is, uh, gets damaged as a consequence of its normal operation. And uh, you say also, something very interesting, that in engineering, it's routine to design technologies before a full theoretical understanding of the underlying physics is achieved. So what I want to ask you in this second question is, so the idea, right, because I think the, the audience will appreciate that, is that we don't need to fully understand the processes behind aging in order to fix them, right? That's exactly right, yes. Of course, in order to manipulate any machine, any system, you need to understand it a certain amount. Mm -hmm. But the way that a pioneering technologist works is by having a good sense of how much they don't need to know. In other words, how much they do need to know before they have a good chance of designing an intervention. And mm -hmm. this is an intervention, whatever it is, if it's a medical intervention or if we're talking about trying to um, mitigate climate change or anything, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, how much they need to know in order to design an intervention that has a good chance of working. Now, <clears throat> that's a very, very, very different way of thinking Yes. than the way that basic scientists think. Basic scientists are not, are not trained and not inclined to go about trying to manipulate nature. They're all about understanding nature. So the idea of, you know, not needing to know something, it just doesn't compute for a basic scientist. <laughs> for them, the, the idea is to find things out for the sake of finding things out. And any, you know, any bonus that may arise from that is a kind of not their problem. And... When I came into the field, the real difficulty that it had, and one of the main reasons why I chose to come into the field at all, mm -hmm. was that almost everybody who knew anything about aging was a basic scientist and not an engineer. Um. So they were all just trying to find out more, and they couldn't tell. They weren't really paying attention to whether they already knew enough. So it to, was all about the knowledge and not about the action, in a way. 
That's exactly right, yes. And of course, the reason why this had happened was because we started out knowing that aging was a very bad thing, you know, a century ago, more than that, but being incredibly far away from being able to do anything about it. And so, of course, it was appropriate to simply focus on understanding it better, on characterizing it better at Mm. first. But as of maybe 40 years ago, that had become not really true anymore. We already understood pretty much everything about aging. In fact, yeah, nearly 40 years ago, all seven of the things that I've just listed for you were already known. They were already... Yeah, nearly 40 years ago. Um, There were already topics, significant major topics of research within the biology of aging. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's a long time not to find anything out. Of course, you never know for sure whether there's something critical that you haven't found out that will stop your intervention from working. Mm -hmm. And that's why pioneering technology is fundamentally experimentation. But that's Mm -hmm. okay. You know, if if it might well work, then it's worth trying. And that may be the quickest way to find out what you didn't know. This is absolutely absolutely fascinating, and uh, and as you say, uh, you know your your intervention intervention in this field has transformed the perspective into a more engineering focused focused one. And this connects with the next thing that I'm really really interested about. You know, um, reading your book, I was really fascinated by this paragraph where you are referring to the concept of using soil bacteria to degrade long-lived organic material. And you say, this was a classic case of someone not immersed in their own experimental work, being able to bring together ideas from very distant disciplines to form a new approach to an existing problem, a critical element of modern scientific progress, which has been sadly neglected in many areas of medicine and biology. This really fascinates me, Aubrey, because I'm very involved personally in the area of uh, idea generation, creativity, uh, innovation processes, ideation. Um, and, and then I find in one of these seven types of damage, that is the mitochondrial uh, mutations, uh, you came up with this theory, the mitochondrial-free radical uh, theory of aging, uh, with the backup of, uh, that you explained before. Um, and, you know, I, I'm really fascinated by your way of working and describing in the book how you came up with this theory. So I would love if you could, for our audience, I don't want to stay just in the generics. I think the audience will be able to appreciate much more the the rigor and the hard scientific work if you uh, tell our audience a little bit in detail how you went from Mm -hmm. a situation in which people were confused about the mitochondrial mutations to developing this amazing theory of mitochondrial free radical theory of aging, in which you do backup of the of the genes of these 13 proteins and, and et cetera, et cetera. Could you give us a little journey? Yeah, all right. So it's not quite the way you're saying. Okay. I, did, I, I didn't actually come up with the mitochondrial free radical theory of okay. aging at all. That really dates back to the, 19, the early 1970s. Mm-hmm. Again, like I said, everything in, in sense is really a, a 40 years old or thereabout. Um, so I did, I did identify a few like, details that were perhaps you know, embellishments of the theory, but the basic okay. theory had been in place for a very long time. And so had the idea of putting these backup copies in the nucleus. Mm-hmm. That was first suggested in the mid-1980s, and mm-hmm. actually it was suggested as an, a, a component of treatment of aging in the early 1990s, before I came along. 
Um, so again, not my idea, though I have um, you know, made some contributions there. Really, the main contribution I've made was to look at work that happened before and see you know, what had been tried and what had not been tried, and basically to come to the conclusion that people had given up too easily. It, it's very difficult, but it's not completely impossible. Yeah. But the thing is, you see, very few people had actually been looking at it in the context of treatment of aging. There was one paper that was written in the um, 19, um, uh, 1990s about this, and that was basically it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I actually, you know, a large part of what I do is not necessarily having new ideas, but bringing together ideas yeah. from other people that have not been brought together before. Exactly, that's, that's exactly what I'm interested about, the way you connect these different things. And that's certainly true in the case of the soil bacteria that you mentioned. That's probably the biggest example, because mm-hmm. the technology, the, the concept that I brought in there had never been um, applied to aging or even to medicine of any kind. Mm. It actually came from environmental decontamination. Uh, where bacteria are used to um, to mop up pollutants like explosives or whatever in the soil when you want to build a housing estate on a disused airfield or something. Um, yeah. And <coughs> I realized that if we could identify the enzymes in these bacteria that break down a particular problematic waste product, then we could introduce those genes into the body. Mm. And, um, you know, it's a very simple idea, and it seems to be working. We have two of our spin-out companies are mm-hmm. doing this, one against atherosclerosis, one against macular degeneration. And the same general idea is also now being used um, to address cross-linking and loss of elasticity. So, yeah, this is a definitely a powerful concept, but nobody had, ad- had, had applied it to aging before. Mm. Uh, so, really, you know, the reason why we need this so badly mm-hmm. is because the shortage of funding that exists in academic research mm. causes a huge amount of balkanization of science. Essentially, if you, are com- if you are competing for a small amount of money and you have a low probability of getting a grant um, you know, approved, mm-hmm. then the best way to maximize your chances is to apply for money to do something that people know you're already good at, Yeah. right? Um, which means you stay within your own speciality. Exactly. And you have, a, you, have, you have no incentive to look at things that are on the periphery of your existing expertise. So it results in a huge amount of bias against this cross-disciplinary work that is ultimately so vital for progress. Yeah, that's beautiful. You remind me of something I also, I think I, I heard in one of your talks, uh, where you said you always felt compelled to make a difference And you said it's difficult to make a difference in the world if you just follow the rules. That is a bit what you are talking about now. I mean, if you just do what is easy, what you are used to. Uh, yeah, and I think in that way, you've always tried to break into other ways of doing things, right? Well, yeah. I mean, partly it's not being too worried about following the rules. Partly it's identifying things to do, prioritizing things to do, not only on the basis of how good you are at them, but also mm-hmm. on the basis of how many other people are also good at them. So, yeah. so for example, when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, mm-hmm. and I already knew that I wanted to spend my life going, you know, solving really big problems, helping to solve really big problems for humanity, mm-hmm. the one that I went into 
was the problem of work. In other words, I felt, you know, it's a bad thing that people have to spend so much of their time doing stuff that they would not do unless they were being paid for it. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, But therefore, that means we need more automation. So that means artificial intelligence. And by that time, I had established that I was a very good programmer. So I thought, well, this is what I'm good at. I'll do this. Because, I mean, of course, there were plenty of other very good programmers, but there wasn't enough work going on in that field. But I didn't think that I was, I knew perfectly well back then that the problem of aging was a much more serious problem than the problem of work. Yeah. But I, but I didn't think that I was a particularly talented biologist. So I thought, well, okay, there are plenty of people who are talented biologists, so I'll let them get on with it. Um, and it was only in my late 20s that I found out that actually hardly any biologists were getting on with it. Virtually nobody was working on aging. And so I thought, well, okay, even if I don't necessarily have um, a particular reason, nevertheless, I will, um, you know, I will uh, work on it anyway. Yeah. That's very interesting. I mean, it, I mean, it's like the outliers. I mean, the people who think like you think, there are very few and far in between, but uh, what a difference they can make. And, and even though you say that uh, this uh, mitochondrial theory existed, which existed, of course, uh, I mean, I know you are, you are very humble, but your contributions to that theory have been uh, highlighted enormously everywhere. So, and I'm really fascinated by, you know, that process of making backups of the, of the genes into the nucleus. That, that, is, that is unbelievable, really, in many yeah, ways. Yeah, no. I mean, if you know anything about how mitochondria evolved, Mm-hmm. then, you know, it, it, it's a well-known fact. It was well-known for, you know, since the 1970s uh-huh. that most of the components of mitochondria are already encoded in genes that are in the nucleus. That yes. used to be mitochondria a long time ago. Yeah, like a thousand not. proteins yeah, or something. That's right. And there are only 13 proteins left. Exactly. So... Really, the idea is simply to use the same machinery to kind of hijack the same machinery for these additional 13 proteins and essentially to complete the job that evolution has almost completed already. So it's not that outlandish an idea, really. Very interesting, very interesting. I love it. So uh, now, before I go into something that the audience will be very interested about, let me me throw you a quick one here. Uh, What is different and what is similar uh, in the way different species age, like between us and other species, other animals, are there many differences? Are there a lot of similarities? There are plenty of similarities and plenty of differences. Okay. And as you would expect, the most fundamental things are the things that are most similar. So, you know, aging is basically the same phenomenon of molecular accumulation and of damage in every mm-hmm. species. But the most fundamental things are, of course, the things that we already understand. And uh, in order to actually intervene in aging in human beings, we need to go further than that. We don't need to understand everything, as I said earlier, but we do Mm -hmm. need to understand quite a lot. So I, for example, I feel that the... um, some of the most commonly studied organisms in the laboratory have kind of outlived their usefulness in that regard. Uh-huh. There's, a, there's a type of worm called a, a Cynorhabditis elegans, a nematode worm, which nematode. is very heavily studied in the laboratory, mm-hmm. especially, in, including in, uh, in terms of its aging. 
normally it lives about three weeks. Mm-hmm. If we do things just right, we can get it to live 10 times longer than normal. 10 times. Wow. So you would think, well, this is really exciting. If we can figure out how that happens, then maybe we can do it in humans as well. Yeah. Actually, we already understand enough about the differences between humans and worms uh-huh. to be able to say pretty clearly that that's not, that's not going to happen, that, the se- that, that, that we won't be able to do the same kind of thing to humans and get even a little bit. There's not much point carrying on studying worms. We'll just get a lot more you know, false storms, you know, for, uh, 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 positive results that don't translate to humans. Now, if you go further away from humans, if, uh, sorry, if, if, you, if, you, if you look at other species that are far away from humans, some of them live a really long time. Uh-huh. Like, um, you know, tortoises live 200 years, um, certain shellfish live 500 years or more. But again, we can't really learn very much. There are certain things that make it easier for those organisms to age really slowly or not to age at all. Mm. For example, <clears throat> it, 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 it's really difficult not to age if you are warm-blooded, right? And most of these long-lived organisms are not warm-blooded. Yeah, um, but we don't have a choice. We are warm-blooded, and that's yeah. life. So, in general, at the moment, um, it's becoming more important to study organisms that are more near to us in evolution. So, uh-huh. typically, only mammals. Mm. Yeah, because the, the, the differences are so large with the others that it just doesn't apply to us, right? Right. right. Okay, fantastic. So now let's go, of course, the audience that you know is getting uh, learning through you about this this fascinating topic. Um, of course, are going to come up with what right a lot of people that uh, that have been even trying to glorify in a way aging because um, you know this this very interesting two axes that you talked about the desirability and viability because many people thought you know it wasn't viable to stop aging and many people kind of say even desirable, uh, you know, to have, to have the aging. So let, let me go quickly through, through some of the pro-aging arguments so that uh, we can give a perspective to the audience. By the way, you, you have said, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, that the people, if, if these, uh, these ways of fixing these seven types of damage, if they worked, uh, the people who are alive today uh, have, uh, I don't know if you said 50-50 chances 50-50 chances to uh, basically, you know, live uh, way, way, way longer. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. I said that we have at least a 50-50 chance mm-hmm. of bringing aging under comprehensive control within 15 or 20 years from now. And when we, d- when we reach that point, people who are still alive and not about to die, so people who are in middle age, for example, mm-hmm. um, will be cap- we will able- be able to rejuvenate them and keep them like young adults, both mentally and physically, for, a- for as long as they live, until they get hit by a truck or something. So the, um, you know, the, the, the chances are very good that most people who are alive today and who are under the age of, let's say, 40, uh, will be able to live indefinitely, yes. Very good, very good. This to give context to the audience. Fantastic. Okay, so now let's have some quick fun with these pro-aging arguments. So the first one um, is when they say, you know, the storytelling argument. They say you don't want to listen to a music symphony for like uh, 300 hours. And I've, I've heard you say in a talk 
uh, well, you know, if you listen to a music symphony, uh, you probably want to listen to a different one uh, later on. I personally wish that I could live multiple different lives, uh, have multiple different careers. Uh, is that is that your your way of uh, rebutting this one? Like like yeah. me personally, for example, right? I want to have infinite different ty types mm. of careers in life. Right. I mean, yeah, exactly. You can, uh, uh, I mean, variety is important in life, certainly. But the whole point of still being youthful, being, um, being biologically young, both mentally and physically, is mm -hmm. that you have the energy and the vitality to explore novelty. And the world is not in danger of running out of novelty. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, um, you see, the thing is, this argument, and indeed all the other arguments, they're not just wrong. They're so obviously wrong yeah, and yeah, so ridiculously broken that you have to step beyond the actual argument that the person is making and you have to ask what is wrong with their heads that is <laughs> stopping them from seeing that what they are about to say is nonsense. Yeah. And of course, of course the answer to that is that they're terrified of getting emotionally invested in mm. the idea of aging being brought under medical control in time for them. You know, they don't want to get their hopes up and then have their hopes dashed. Very interesting, very interesting. Yeah, I think uh, in a way, right, uh, you, you talk in one of the talks as well about the pro-aging trance. Like, um, it's like a psychological coping mechanism, isn't it? When, when people feel that uh, something, in, they are not entirely sure, as you say, that is completely viable, they prefer to kind of uh, make it desirable. It's something like that. Yeah, yeah that's right. Um, essentially, if is, you is, can, that, is that a human kind of it happens a lot with humans, this kind of psychological mechanism? I think so. I mean, I think that, um, you know, being terrified of getting your hopes up is pretty normal. It's a pretty um, standard human reaction. Yeah. And, you know, it's there's, there's a syndrome called Stockholm syndrome where people get used to, you know, being in captivity of terrorists and things like that. Um, you know, it's all the same kind of thing. Essentially, using arbitrarily illogical arguments to convince yourself that aging is some kind of blessing in disguise. Yeah. It's a way of putting it out of your mind and getting on with your miserably short life and making the best of it rather than being preoccupied by this thing. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a brilliant way of putting it. I like about the boredom, the boredom argument. I, I love what you said in, in a talk that somebody else said. Uh, what do you prefer to get, Alzheimer at 80 or to get bored at 150? Yeah, that's not mine, actually. That was Brian Kennedy <laughs> who said that when he and I were on a panel together. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's a perfectly good way of saying it. Uh, <laughs> I, I think most people would choose the boredom. <laughs> that's, brilliant. that's brilliant. Okay, now what about the overpopulation one? I think you said sometime that uh, technology, a lot of, of the things that worry us today about the overpopulation, Technology at the rate that is improving is going to uh, solve a lot of those, right? Right. So, yeah, and I don't mean, I mean, so the first thought that a lot of people have is, well, maybe the way to solve the problem of population growth that would happen if people stopped dying of aging would be to emigrate into space. That's a ridiculous idea, firstly because space is a really dangerous place and people don't really want to go there. Yeah, and then, I certainly yeah, that. And also because um, it wouldn't even solve the problem for for very long because we, 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 there's only so much space you can get to in a certain amount of time. Mm -hmm. um, 
But in fact, there are plenty of much better answers than that. In particular, other technologies are in, in the works that are increasing the carrying capacity of the planet. In other uh -huh. words, the number of people that can exist on the Earth um, without a significant environmental impact. Obviously, hmm. today, we have environmental challenges arising from having the number of people that we already have, and that's what makes people think this way. But those challenges are already being addressed because they are not caused by not having enough space. They're caused by people making too much pollution. Yeah. And so the technologies I'm talking about, of course, are things like renewable energy and artificial meat and desalination and, you know, bacteria that eat plastics, stuff like that. And once we have all those things, which are coming much more quickly than the technology that I work on to defeat aging, um, the a number of people that we can have on the planet without an unacceptable environmental impact will be growing much faster than the population will grow. So whether or not, or when, whenever we eliminate aging, we will still have a solution to the problem of environmental impact of humanity on the Earth. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Very well explained, all these technologies. Now, what about this one that some people may bring out? Um, if, if we don't have to worry about uh, death anymore, um, somebody who is uh, 50 years old and may live a thousand, um, maybe dies in a car accident, something, suddenly something like a car accident or, or things like that may look terrifying. Is, is the attitude of people to, are they going to find uh, very risky things that today we don't care so much about. I know you've talked about this one as well, uh, and mm -hmm. I think it's a bit connected to the previous one, that maybe technology will change some of those risks, maybe? Yeah, exactly. So um, when something is risky, you have a choice. Either you do it because you think the risk is small enough to be acceptable, yeah. or you don't do it. But mm -hmm. for the f if, you, if, you, if, if you choose not to do it, but you really enjoy doing it, you want to be able to do it in the future at some yeah. point anyway. So then the question is, how would you arrange that? In the future, it's still going to be risky and you're still not going to want to take the risk. But hang on, is it necessarily going to be risky? Maybe in the meantime, you can develop new technology that makes the activity less risky mm -hmm. so that the magnitude of the risk will be acceptable, even though it's not acceptable today. And of course, that is exactly what happens. So for example, yeah. at the moment we are, um, you know, people are working hard to develop self-driving cars. Yeah. Um, you know, road accidents kill more people worldwide than every other type of accident put together. Yeah. Uh, so that's a lot of people. And when we have when when cars are being driven by by um, computers, there will be virtually no car accident, no road accidents. Yeah. So um, you know that's that's just one example of how it's going to be fine. And of course, people may say, "Well, hang on." I don't really enjoy that. I want to enjoy being, um, you know, enjoy the actual actual experience of driving rather than just being driven by a car. But again, technology does this. So if we look at, you know, Formula One today, for example, you know, uh -huh. the drivers just don't die, right? Yeah. They, yeah. I mean, very occasionally they do. Very but, um, but it's much rarer than what it used to be 10 or 20 years ago. And that's because of better technology. That's brilliant, yeah, totally clear. 
Totally clear. Okay, the last two, okay, one of them, uh, very easy. Uh, people that worry about pensions, pensions, I think you've said that the, the, the majority of the health costs are related to the elderly, and of course that's going to go away, obviously, if this happens. Right. The economic benefits of not having people get sick when they get old are astronomical. So we will definitely make, be making sure that everybody who is old enough to need these therapies can get them, even if they don't have any money to pay for them. That sounds crazy from a private healthcare perspective in the US, for example, but yeah. it, is, it is economically absolutely inescapable. It's going to be that way. Um, so then, you know, pensions are, I mean, what are pensions anyway? We pay people you know, to do nothing um, from the age of 65, why do we do that? The answer is fundamentally because we're very sorry for them because they're about to die. <laughs> so that's not going to be true anymore. Yeah. And of course, we won't have nearly so much need for work anyway because of other technology that's coming along, namely mm -hmm. the technology I used to work on of automation, which even by conservative estimates is likely to eliminate most of the jobs that exist today worldwide within the next 20 or 30 years. Yeah. That was exactly the last point that I was going to bring up, the work one. Exactly. So automation will eliminate all those work. I think you've also spoken about probably there will be a universal basic income or something. And then I think you've, you've said that education will be important in that case, right? Because um, people will have to develop a new kind of attitude without... Well, I wouldn't say they have to. I will say they will want to. The, yeah. um, the, uh, the, the role of... Adult education and retraining is likely to be very large, but that's simply because people will have, as I mentioned earlier, the vitality to explore new ideas, new novelty in life. And some of that requires a bit of work, a bit of training, a bit of um, gaining of new expertise. Brilliant, brilliant. So let's, let's go in that direction. Uh, the impact on attitude. Do you think that making us live longer will make us more or less individualistic? So as human beings, you know, individualistic versus more community-driven, uh, if we get to live, and this connects with another thing you said in the talk, uh, speaking about centenarians, people who live 100 years, you said what they have in common is that nothing bothers them. They cope very well with stress, and bad hormones don't get elevated so much. So the question is, if we don't have to worry about aging, uh, will we also maybe stop caring much about our health because everything can be fixed? Uh, we will become more or less individualistic. What do you think about the attitude? Yeah, well, <clears throat> I don't think centenarians can tell us very much about that because mm. the point of centenarians is they get that way. They get to be living to 100 even without the medicines that we are in the process of developing. That's, that's true. Um, but in terms of the future, I don't know whether we will necessarily become more individualistic. I think one thing that's very often overlooked is that people's motivations for doing this or that tend to be relatively short-term. Uh -huh. um, you know, it's not like um, people uh, choose their priorities on the basis of how soon they think they're going to die. Yeah. Um, uh, I often ask people, take yourself back to the first time you had sex and, think, and ask yourself, what were you thinking immediately beforehand? You probably were not thinking, oh, my God, oh, my God, I have to get this person into bed right now because I've only got another 60 years to live, right? <laughs> Um, so, yeah, people don't really think in those terms. So I don't think it's really going to have all that much impact on things like individual uh, in, in, you know, selfishness or community thinking or whatever. I think other technologies like um, automation and so on are likely to have more of an impact on those things.
Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Now let's connect back with your work. Something that really fascinates me within artificial intelligence is, is what I call the artificial researcher. If we could develop, you know, like GPT-2, these natural language AI systems that now can like produce articles that are very realistic. If we could eventually produce an AGI system or an AI system that is able to comprehend texts, of course, without consciousness, but uh, really able to, to understand the connections, uh, uh, the semantics and everything. And, and that system could absorb all the research, all the medical research of the last many decades and centuries. Uh, do you think that kind of system could really accelerate and help even more uh, people like you, uh, the work in this area, you know? Um, honestly, I don't know. <laughs> uh, um, I mean, certainly the, um, you know, the, the, the rise of artificial intelligence is going to change the world in a very great way. Mm -hmm. And right now, even though artificial intelligence is still in its infancy, Yes. We are using state-of-the-art machine learning techniques in the process of drug discovery and mm -hmm. um, you know, the development of new therapeutics. So yes, certainly it will be important and will be increasingly important in all areas of research, including medical research. Perfect. You don't see it essential, but, but it, it will contribute in yes. some way. Perfect. Now, um, you know, these, these ways of fixing the, the seven kinds of damage um, they apply to the entire body. The, the, you know, every, the cells are the same everywhere. But regarding the brain, uh, within the human body, we, we have so much to learn about the brain. Is there anything in the brain that worries you about this or not? Do you think, do you think that fixing aging in the brain is going to be as easy, in quotes, than in the rest of the body, basically? I think it's, <clears throat> it's going to be all... Um, almost the same. Almost the same. I mean, at, the end, the, at the end of the day, the, the brain is made of the same kind of stuff as the rest of the body. You know, it's made yeah. of cells and stuff between cells, and the cells are made of the same kind of stuff, like proteins and DNA and so on, right? So, yeah. um, so the uh, seven things that I mentioned apply equally, whether it's in the brain or in the rest of the body. You know, um, we still need to replace cells in the in the part of the brain that makes dopamine for Parkinson's disease, and we need to mm -hmm. replace cells in the thymus where it gets lost in order to rejuvenate the immune system. Similarly, we need to get rid of waste products inside cells like neurofibrillary tangles in the brain, and we need to get rid of waste products in the artery like oxidized cholesterol. Perfect. Um, and so, on. so yeah, it's pretty much the same job. Perfect. That's good news. Okay. Now, uh, you've said something that I find really, really interesting. That is that um, in the moment that in the next maybe five years, we can see that in mice, uh, we can really uh, have great results in terms of uh, aging-related things. There could be a really, really quick switch, really quick switch in the way people perceive uh, this, this problem and the possibilities. And you've said that an, an anti-aging policy, speaking about regulation and politics and policy, that is really urgent to begin thinking about anti-aging policies because in the moment that uh, great uh, progress happens in mice, for example, the switch uh, in, in perception and attitudes could be really, really quick. Could you tell us a bit about this urgency? Yeah. So, <clears throat> yeah, <clears throat> and this is a big thing that people have really gone to sleep on so far. Really, really important. Mm. When, you, when I talk about this thing to pretty much any audience, mm. what happens 
is people will say, well, you think it's going to be 20 years? A lot of people think it's going to be longer. I'll worry about it when it happens. And then I'll think about how I'm going to change my life and how I'm going to change what products my company sells and so on. That's the way that most people think. And it's very hard to get them to think differently than that. Yeah. Well, um, one reason to think differently, of course, is that if you change your priorities now, you may be able to hasten the arrival of these therapies, make them happen faster by, for example, directing more funding to the basic research that needs to be done. And that's Mm -hmm. really important. But that's not the thing that you're referring to in this question. The thing you're referring to, incredibly important, is the decisions that the the average person, the regular member of the general public, makes as a result of how long they think they're going to live. So most people today, you know, they may have heard of the kind of work that, that's going on to bring aging under medical control, but uh, they're, not, <clears throat> they're not really thinking about it every day. They, you know, they'll believe it when they see it and so on. They know that people have been claiming to have defeated aging since the beginning of civilization. So they're a bit skeptical. Fine. But there will come a point when they stop being skeptical, yeah. you know, when... Uh, when they they hear things in the laboratory from uh, on the news about laboratory results, where, for example, someone's been able to get mice to live twice as long as normal, mm-hmm. and in particular, when they hear about laboratory results which work on animals that are already in middle age, let's say two thirds of the way through their natural lifespan, mm-hmm. and they even after that you can double their lifespan then people are going to get pretty interested. And Mm -hmm. they're going to be starting to believe that these therapies are coming for human beings, even though they know that the therapies have not yet arrived for human beings. So why does that matter so much? Well, the reason it matters is because of what people spend their money on. If Mm. you think about it, the big ticket items, the things that cost the most, are very strongly determined by how long somebody thinks they're going to live. Yeah. Whether it's, you know, what kind of pension plan they want, or what kind of health insurance, or what kind of life insurance, what kind of inheritance arrangement. These things are huge drivers and, you know, components of the global economy. And when people and people are going to move overnight from a state of mind where they think they're going to live just slightly longer than their parents did. Yeah. into a state of mind a result arising from these laboratory advances where they think they might well live 10 times as long as their parents did, yeah. right? Now, that's a very big change, which will translate almost at once into changes in what kind of products these people want and changes in the global economy. And the people who run the global economy and who run the financial services sector in different countries had better be ready. If those people are taken by surprise, by this change in public attitudes, then it's going to be absolute chaos. Yeah, that's that's uh, that communicates perfectly the urgency of this of this uh, of the beginning of these processes. Okay, so let's move on the the final part uh, quickly. A quick one, quick one. Uh, nanobots, nanobots and xenobots. Do you see any important role for them in the future or uh, in the treatment of aging? Nanobots and xenobots? Ah, kind of, yeah. So um, <clears throat> the, um, I, I, like to ask, I, I like to change this question a bit into a slightly more general question. Okay. Um, so 
the, the real question is about the utility of non-biological solutions to medical problems. Very good. Um, so, of course, we've had some such things for a very long time. Uh, we've, we've had, for example, um, glasses, and then we had cochlear implants and, mm-hmm. um, yeah. you know, artificial joints you know, made of titanium, and now we're getting artificial hearts and so on. Um, so this is all, you know, part of the same thing. And yeah. the reason why you're asking the question in the way you do is quite correctly because the, um, the scope, the range, the, 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 the range of things that we may be able to use um, non-biological approaches for is increased as a result of miniaturization. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you can make things smaller, you can do more with them. And nanobots are pretty much the, you know, the, the, the extreme end of that spectrum. So yes, I certainly expect that the contribution of non-biological um, approaches for medicine will continue to increase. I don't know that it will ever necessarily become the only way we do things or even the dominant way, but it will certainly be a big part. Very good. Fantastic. Uh, and and we, we are looking forward to see what happens with, with those kind of non-biological uh, entities. So now to finish with the last two quick questions, one question I really want to make to you. In order for your research and your work, the work of, of the Sense Foundation and everything that you do, Uh, to accelerate even more, what is uh, what you guys need for people to know? You know, what is what the field, what your field and what your own work and foundation, what is needed to make your work go even faster? Yeah, I'm really sorry to say this, but the fact is there's still only one thing we need and we, it's the same thing that we've always needed. We need more funding. Okay. Now, that's the, 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 if I go into more detail, the situation has changed a bit over okay. the past um, 10 years, even over the past five years, mm-hmm. because now there is an industry. There is a private sector here with a bunch of investors who are interested in getting involved in startup companies in this space. Mm-hmm. I mentioned earlier that we have spun out a bunch of our projects into various startup companies. There's half a dozen of those now. And there's well over 100 companies out there um, doing similar stuff, independently of us, but very closely aligned. Yes. Which is wonderful. And those companies are reasonably well-funded in most cases. So the work that they are doing is not limited, really, by the availability of money to push things forward. The limiting factor is simply the difficulty of the science. However, the reason why Sense Research Foundation still exists at all is because there are still some projects which are just as important in terms of developing other components of the panel of interventions that we're going to need, mm-hmm. some projects which have not yet reached the point of investability, where uh, people who uh-huh. want to make money are able to persuade themselves that it's worth investing in them. Because they are too experimental in a way? Well, too early stage, yeah, early stage. too risky. So basically those areas are ones in which the funding still has to be philanthropic. Hmm. still has to come, come without any expectation of a return. And as ever, you know, most people who have a lot of money, even the visionary ones, they are much more comfortable with giving money if they think they might get money back later on than if they don't. 
So it's still very difficult to get that. And we have still a budget of less than $5 million per year, oh. which is the same we've had for the past 10 or 15, well, 10 years or so. We definitely could go a lot faster if we had more. Very good. Very good to know for, for all the audience to, to understand this. And, and before I go to the last question that um, is going to be special, um, the most, in your opinion, just quickly, briefly, uh, the, the biggest challenges ahead uh, in your work and in this, in this challenge of the seven types of damage, um, what, are, what are the biggest challenges ahead to make a reality this 50-50 uh, possibility? That you were talking about. Um, well, there's no one challenge. There's no even, not even a single, a short list of challenges. Each of these seven technologies needs to be perfected. So okay. they, you know, there's, within each of those areas, you know, these are big and complicated research projects, and that's yeah. why we have research. We have large teams of researchers as large as we can afford. Um, furthermore, even when they are perfected individually, they will have to be combined. We have to apply mm -hmm. the same therapies to the same people at the same time, uh, well, yeah. different therapies to the same people at the same time. And, um, you know, so that's, that, that's part of why we expect it still to take upwards of 15 years before everything is really working. 15. Okay, very good. And the last question, Aubrey, um, I, I really liked uh, what you said, speaking about your life and your early, early years. You always felt compelled to make a difference in the world uh, as a result of your introspection processes. Um, and that's why I want to ask you, because I think it's especially relevant uh, regarding your work. What is for you the meaning of life? What gives purpose? I mean, you've already said part of what gives purpose to life for you to make a difference. But, you know, could you go a bit deeper for you? What gives purpose to life? Yeah, honestly, I can't go a bit deeper because I think it's different for everybody. Everybody yes. has their own motivations. And if you ask me, for example, a simple question, why do I want to spend my life making a difference? I have no idea. That's just how I am. Yeah. And furthermore, I, it doesn't bother me that I have no idea. I'm just, you know, it's who I am and I'm fine with it. So if other people want to ha have other motivations, that's fine too. I'm just not a philosopher. Yeah, but, but, uh, but the interesting thing, and I think the beautiful thing, is that you do have, and you did have since your early years, that drive, a drive to make a difference in the world. And yeah. I guess that gives you already the motivation, in a way. That's right. That is the motivation. That is the motivation. Brilliant. Okay, that's a perfect way of uh, finishing. Thank you so much for your time, Aubrey. I think a lot of people will be um, fascinated and will have learned so much through this conversation. Well, thank you for having me on the show. Thank you so much and greetings from the spacecraft. I hope to live 1,000 years at least in here. Bye-bye. <laughs> See you, Aubrey. Thank you for following the Beyond podcast. If you enjoy it, subscribe on YouTube and support it in other channels like Patreon and others. And hope to see you soon at the Beyond podcast. Thank you.